This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Please note the story you're about to hear is not drawn from any single version of the basilisk. Accounts of this mythological creature vary across the centuries. We've combined several disparate interpretations along with a generally accepted account of the creature's literary and cultural history for the purpose of this episode. Long ago, in the dry Mediterranean hills of Cyrene, three knights were galloping on their tall steeds. The hot summer sun beat down on their chainmail, leaving their bodies slick with sweat and their spear hands slippery. But they were used to these conditions and rode on. They had to get to the castle by nightfall. They had good tidings to deliver. They joked and chattered from horseback, boasting about their prowess in battle and speculating about the feast that awaited them that night. All the while, they tossed a wineskin between them, anything to take their minds off the heat. But they kept their eyes on the dusty road, watching for animals. Even a small lizard might spook the horses and hold them up. A few miles out from the castle, their watchful gaze was rewarded. All three knights noticed the little serpent, no more than a foot long, lingering in the middle of the road. Two of the riders swerved, keeping their horses' eyes away from the slithering thing. But the youngest and most foolish of the knights was riding straight towards it, and instead of altering his course, he angled his spear, ready to display his excellent aim. He'd kill the little thing in a moment as his horse flew past. The knight's spear made contact, but as it dug into the beast's flesh, something strange happened. Its blood began to flow up the handle of the spear. The knight stared in horror, It flooded past the weapon's handle, then onto his hand, his body, his horse. Man and beast toppled into the dusty road as their companions looked on in horror. The creature he had stabbed was no ordinary snake. It was a basilisk, and its deadly poison had turned their friend into an oozing shell as if he'd walked out of a burning house. His hair was blackened, his face a mess of blood and disintegrating skin. His eyes, standing out from the pile of debris, 
wore a look of utter terror. Welcome to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Every week we dive into history's most legendary monsters. In telling their stories, we hope to shed light on some truths hidden behind the creation of these beasts, where they come from, what they symbolize, and how they expose humanity's greatest fears. You can find episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Mythical Monsters for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. Today, we're discussing the Basilisk, the king of serpents, a deadly hybrid beast born from an egg laid by a rooster and hatched by a toad. The Basilisk of legend could kill with a single glance. It terrified medieval Europeans and decorated many of their manuscripts even making appearances in the works of Geoffrey Chaucer and Leonardo da Vinci. Today, it's best known for its role in J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. But the story of the basilisk goes back much farther than that, all the way to ancient Rome. The earliest written description of the basilisk comes from the ancient Roman philosopher Pliny the Elder in his book Natural History. Completed in 79 CE, this monolithic 37-volume work covered everything from bees to mathematics to monsters. Pliny's basilisk lived in Cyrene, now Libya, and was a small creature, not more than 12 fingers in length. It looked like a little snake wearing a white diadem, or crown, hence its title, the King of Serpents. And unlike other serpents, it walked upright. While Pliny described the basilisk as a small, unassuming creature, it possessed deadly power. Even glancing into its eyes or feeling its breath led to immediate death. It's likely this destructive ability that led to an ancient Roman myth featuring the beast. A basilisk slid through the underbrush, its upright head held high above the grass. Plants withered beneath its poisonous breath as it passed. This left a trail of death through the otherwise verdant Mediterranean region of Cyrene. When the basilisk's dark, impenetrable eyes looked upon distant trees, they too shriveled and died. Even the rocks over which the basilisk slid cracked, destroyed by its poisonous power. A shepherd leading his goats through the forest chanced upon the dry, brittle path the serpent had left in its wake. 
He was so distracted by the sight that he forgot his goats. He stood there for a long moment, gazing at the dead earth. He'd been seeing more and more basilisk-hewn destruction of late, so much it was starting to change the face of this land he knew so well. The basilisk's numbers seemed to be growing. The shepherd snapped out of his trance and started corralling his goats. There was nothing he could do about the basilisk, aside from get his goats to pasture as soon as possible and pray that he didn't meet one of the serpents in person. He then went inside his hut and turned in for the night, dreaming of serpents. He knew that even knights feared the beast. Many had perished in attempts to slay it when the basilisk's blood ran up their spears and poisoned them. Horrifying images of the basilisk defying nature passed through his mind until he shot up awake. A shiver ran down the shepherd's back as he hurried into the mounting morning heat. There was a strange tension in the air today. As the shepherd weaved his way through the woods, he saw more of the dry, dead basilisk paths. They were everywhere he turned, but he didn't see any snakes. And soon, he made it to his pasture. He stopped at the sight of the open field, drinking in the warm, bright sunlight. A pleasant breeze blew softly across his face. Perhaps today was a normal, quiet day after all, a day for lolling in the grass and yelling merrily at his goats. He reached for his wineskin, ready to quench his dry lips with a long sip. Just as he untied the bag, he froze. There, not ten meters away, was a serpent. And not just any serpent. It was standing upright and had a small white crown on its head. It was a basilisk. The shepherd spun away from the serpent immediately, turning his eyes skyward as he gasped in fear. He had not made eye contact with the creature. If he had, he would be dead. He knew he had to get away from the basilisk at once before its poisoned breath reached him. His only choice was to run and pray to the gods that the basilisk wasn't as quick as its venom was deadly. He ran until he was gasping for air, his fear driving him. Behind him, he heard a persistent hiss and the soft, crumpling sound of plants withering to the ground. He couldn't look back, but he knew it was getting closer. As he approached a large olive tree, he threw himself up toward its lower branches. Perhaps if he climbed high enough, he would escape. An instant later, the shepherd cursed himself as he saw the folly in his plan. The basilisk would simply wither the tree with its poison glare, and once the tree was felled, the shepherd would have nowhere to go. He was doomed. But as the shepherd scrambled up the tree, he disturbed a weasel sleeping below it. The weasel scurried out of its nest, squeaking angrily. It came face to face with the basilisk. The basilisk fixed the little furry creature with its icy gaze. 
but instead of immediately toppling to the ground, the animal let loose its oily, skunk-like spray as it fell. And then the basilisk toppled to the ground with it. Stunned, the shepherd climbed down from his perch to gaze at the two corpses. He had heard that the weasel's odor had a strange and deadly effect on the otherwise impenetrable basilisk. But he was sorry to see that the rodent perished in the struggle. He would have liked to thank his savior. The shepherd, for all the fear he felt on that deadly day, was lucky. He lived on. But what he lived on to see was a sad world. Slowly, Cyrene's infestation of basilisks worsened until there was no vegetation left. Eventually, the entire region was turned to desert. The desert we now know as the Sahara. Some scholars believe that Pliny's description of the basilisk and other ancient accounts of the serpent are based on Egyptian cobras, which lived in the deserts of North Africa. They were hunted by a weasel-like animal, the ichneumon, domesticated by ancient Egyptians. And while cobras couldn't kill with a glance, they were certainly deadly. But the belief that an infestation of basilisks was responsible for transforming Cyrene from a lush, verdant landscape into dry desert has more opaque origins. To understand it, we can go back to one of the central functions of myths. They explain the natural world and its strange, incomprehensible phenomena in human terms. For ancient Greeks in their abundant homeland, the lifeless expanse of the Sahara across the Mediterranean must have seemed ominous. How could a country become so barren? Would their own land end up the same way? The story of the basilisk explained why the land in Cyrene was so dry and also reassured the ancient Greeks and Romans that their own land was safe. As long as they avoided the plague of a basilisk infestation, it acted, as myth often does, as reassurance. But the legend of the basilisk was just beginning. By the Middle Ages, the king of serpents became much more menacing. Coming up, we'll explain the evolution of the basilisk in the Middle Ages when the dreadful snake grew wings. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In the first century CE, Pliny the Elder copied down the earliest legends of the basilisk in his Natural History, a monolithic text that is still read today. But it wasn't just the ancients who believed in the strange, deadly powers of the basilisk. In fact, it wasn't until the Middle Ages that a more comprehensive picture of the monster emerged in a genre of text called bestiaries. 
Bestiaries, or illustrated catalogs of animal stories, were wildly popular in the Middle Ages, second only to the Bible. Their stories were drawn from ancient myths and legends, as well as contemporary scientific thought, and they often emphasized strange, monstrous creatures like the basilisk. They also had a tradition of drawing snakes with wings and one pair of legs in their illustrations, a practice unrelated to the basilisk. But perhaps it was these winged, legged serpents that led to a strange new origin story for the basilisk, an origin which first emerged around 1100 CE and started to populate bestiaries thereafter. An elderly rooster paraded around the forest, the comb on his head trembling in the cool night air. He was a proud beast, but his many years were weighing on him. He didn't know where he was going to sleep tonight. He was used to sleeping in the farmer's hen house, but he'd escaped out into the night of his own volition. He'd made the choice to run wild through the forests. Now his feathers were bedraggled, his spindly legs were tired, and he was ready to lay down and sleep. But he was so alone, if only he had a companion. Suddenly, he heard it, the sound of another rooster. It was crying somewhere in the forest, not so far away. If he ran a bit longer, he might make it to this feathered friend, and perhaps they could spend the night together. With a shrill hoot of his own, the rooster started to run through the woods. And not too far away, he was delighted to find the source of the distant cry. This new rooster, with a proud, shiny coat of feathers and a towering comb, was the most beautiful creature he'd ever seen. The elderly rooster and his new companion produced a strange egg together. But as they were both males, they weren't sure what to do with the thing. Neither had ever laid an egg before, and they hadn't paid much mind to the activities of the hens. And so, happy in one another's company, they left the thing on the forest floor, by the banks of a small pond, and wandered off into the forest for new adventures. Meanwhile, the little egg languished, cold and alone. A toad, hopping along the bank of the pond, happened upon the egg. She waded over to inspect the round object. Quickly, she identified it as an egg. Not her egg, or the egg of another toad, certainly, but an egg nonetheless. An egg that needed hatching. And so the toad squatted down on the thing, extending her tongue every now and then to catch a fly, and waited. Eventually, a soft cracking sound erupted from beneath her. The toad scooted off the egg, her bulbous eyes peering at the egg in anticipation. What creature would emerge from within? The toad jumped back in surprise as the eggshell crumbled. Even she, the forest's strangest, ugliest creature, was alarmed by what she saw. A chick with the tail of a serpent stumbled out of the egg, hissing angrily. 
This medieval origin story of the basilisk, recorded first around 1100 CE, was repeated, with slight variations, by a host of well-respected figures. These included Saint Hildegard of Bingen in the mid-12th century, English scholar Alexander Neckham in the late 12th century, and theologian Bartholomew Glanville, and friar Vincent of Beauvais in the 13th century. Illustrations of basilisks as roosters with the scales and tails of a snake became commonplace in the bestiaries of medieval Europe. Occasionally, beasts of this same description were also called cockatrices. The basilisk of the bestiaries tapped into wider patterns of animal symbolism in the medieval Christian world. The toad, for example, was often associated with evil. Poet John Milton even uses it as a symbol for Satan in his Paradise Lost. Thanks to these dark associations, the toad was an appropriate participant in the birth of a deadly, hellish monster. To counter the beast's hellishness, some bestiaries also brought God into accounts of the basilisk. They explained that the serpent's vulnerability to the weasel was a crucial aspect of its place in God's animal kingdom, because God never makes anything without a remedy. Despite its deadly nature, the basilisk could still be felled, thanks to God's wisdom and kindness. The monster was certainly presented as something that needed a remedy, and not just because it was incubated by an evil toad, as a creature born not only of a male animal, but as the product of two male animals, it went against God's ordained natural order. It was also, to medieval Christians, clearly Satan's spawn. But still, there's no distinct moral attached to this strange beast's origin tale, unlike most animal stories and bestiaries, which were often allegorical. Its story wasn't told to teach little children a message about appropriate Christian behavior or God's power. Rather, it seems that it was preserved in part because its Roman origins classified it as a real, scientific beast, and in part because of a certain medieval group that took an interest in the basilisk. Two men stood in the dark dungeon, watching the fire roaring in the hearth. It cut through the shadows and filled the room with warmth. But the two men weren't interested in creature comforts. Their eyes were fixed on a cauldron hanging above the flames, its contents boiling. They were conducting an alchemical experiment, one which demanded spiritual, physical, and emotional purity. They had to constantly look inwards at their own souls before launching into their work. For they were practicing the most difficult of all alchemical acts, making gold. Slowly, bubbles of foam began to spill over the cauldron's cast-iron sides. The men looked at each other and nodded. Then they approached the fire, their brows coated with sweat. They prayed silently that finally they'd gotten their recipe right. Then they chanted out the words of one of their teachers, words given to him in a dream. The blessed stone, one in number and no more, our great elixir most high of price, our azot, our basilisk, our a-drop, and our cockatrice. 
Their hearts were pounding as they poured the liquid from the cauldron into the small beakers waiting on the table. The sulfurous smell, the strange swirling eddies in this blackened pot, had the semblance of what they were looking for. Slowly, the men's eyes began to light up and their hands to shake. The liquid was solidifying into stone. Had they finally gotten the recipe right? If they had, this was a very special stone. It could transform common metal to gold, but it could also heal a sick man or make a healthy man live forever. It could change the life of all humankind for the better. The Philosopher's Stone, it was called, but it also had another name, the Basilisk. Alchemy was a medieval pseudoscience. It claimed that it was possible to create a very special stone through a combination of chemical and spiritual work. The basilisk, some alchemists thought, had a connection to this magical stone. This connection was explained in a compendium of alchemical writings written around 1400. This liquid will coagulate into a visible stone called the basilisk. For just as the basilisk kills a man by its mere glance, so too this stone kills mercury, solidifying and fixing it into perfect silver without using fire. The deadly nature of this monstrous basilisk made it a perfect symbol for the philosopher's stone, which killed lesser things, like metal or disease. In the case of alchemy, of course, those lesser things were then replaced with wonderful things, like gold and eternal life. Alchemy, however, didn't just use the basilisk as a metaphor for the philosopher's stone. Some texts on alchemy even went so far as to list basilisk ashes as an ingredient necessary for creating the stone. The basilisk, being a mythical beast, would have been difficult for alchemists to find. But perhaps this impossible grocery list was exactly what they needed to keep the hope of alchemy alive. Like the basilisk, alchemy existed somewhere between science and fantasy. But in medieval Europe, many people considered both alchemy and the basilisk very real. So real, in fact, that there are several historical instances in which whole cities were terrorized by a basilisk. Coming up, we'll explore some of the real-life basilisk sightings that fueled the medieval legends of the beast. Now, back to the story. During the Middle Ages, the Roman legend of the basilisk expanded through its consistent inclusion in popular bestiaries and its association with alchemy. But many medieval people believed these legendary basilisks to be a very real threat. 1587, Warsaw, Poland. The streets were bustling with business. The laundry was flying on lines strung between the city's buildings. The chamber pots were being dumped unceremoniously on the heads of unlucky pedestrians winding through the narrow cobblestone streets. But one woman wasn't having a normal day at all. 
Lady Macaropius dragged her daughter's nursemaid by the hand as she ran from building to building, banging on her neighbor's doors. At each door, she shouted the same question, had they seen her daughter? But none of them had. Finally, the nursemaid was able to stop the frantic mother and calm her. Surely the girl was off playing with one of her little companions somewhere around town. She would turn up eventually. Lady Macaropius wasn't convinced, but out of breath and tired, she agreed to return home. They could at least search all the rooms thoroughly before alarming the rest of Warsaw. At home, the women searched each room carefully, as the nursemaid had advised. They looked under the beds and in the trunks of linens. They searched the cupboards in the kitchen. After looking everywhere else, the nursemaid suggested they check the basement. It had fallen into ruin three years before, but perhaps the little girl had toddled down there to play. As soon as they descended down those first few steps, Lady Macaropius and the nursemaid stopped short. Two small figures lay on the floor below. It was her daughter and her playmate. Their skin was bluish white. Their poses were stiff and awkward. The two women started to shout out the little girl's name, agony straining their voices. But they already knew the truth. The girls weren't napping or playing a game. They were dead. Mother and nursemaid looked at one another in horror. But then the nursemaid, as courageous as she was clever, announced to her mistress that she would go down to the girls. She'd examine them to find out what happened. Lady Macaropius gave a tense, agonized nod, still in shock at the sight of her daughter. Then she watched the nursemaid descend. After a few steps, the maid reached the tiny corpses. But then she collapsed beside them. She didn't get back up. Lady Macaropius was aghast. Trembling, she ran to the main house to get help. Something was lurking in her basement. Something impossibly deadly. The citizens of Warsaw approached Lady Macaropius's house with caution. Many of them noted that the air felt unusually thick. All of them speculated that something supernatural was at work. They decided against going inside. They left the lady alone, save the three bodies in her basement. Alarmed, the city senate convened to discuss a proper response. The senators knew the damage a supernatural creature could do to an unlucky city. They gritted their teeth in fear and agreed that something had to be done about the beast in Lady Macaropius's basement. But they themselves were just politicians. They needed someone versed in the arcane arts to assess this case, to tell them what evil was haunting their people, and to put forth a plan of action that would save the city from chaos and death. That someone was an old man named Benedictus, former chief physician to the king. Benedictus felt the fear seeping through the Senate halls and through the city streets. 
He even felt terror sinking in his own heart as he listened to the story of these strange supernatural deaths in Lady Macropius's cellar. But wise man that he was, he steeled his heart. The city needed his arcane arts. With a bow to the quaking senators, he bravely agreed to examine the contaminated bodies. He would do his best to determine what was haunting the city and find a solution to save Warsaw. He ordered the burghers, or high-ranking citizens, to pull all three bodies out of the Macaropia cellar using long poles appended to iron hooks. And then he began his examination. The three corpses were swollen like drums. Their skin was discolored, and their eyes protruded out of their sockets like appalling eggs. There was no doubt this was the work of a basilisk. The Senate burst into a flurry of whispers when they heard the news, frozen with fear. They all knew the stories of the basilisk. They knew it could kill with its gaze, with its breath, with its blood. They knew that it was small, but more deadly than a lion. The news could not have been worse. Finally, one brave, practical man stepped forward, asking the question that the city leaders were all afraid to hear the answer to. Benedictus, is there anything we can do to kill this vile beast in our midst? Benedictus smiled sadly. There was a way to defeat this monster, but it would require a man of exceptional courage. He would have to descend into that deadly basement, seize the basilisk with a rake, and drag it out into the light. This hero's armor would be made of many mirrors. These would protect him from the gaze of the basilisk. But even with this strange garb, the mission was no sure thing. The Senate went back to whispering, reassured that there was some path forward, but they were still terrified. Was there anyone amongst the burghers who was brave enough for this challenge? There wasn't, it turned out. Neither the military nor the police turned up a single candidate. The tension in Warsaw's streets was mounting, and the Senate was whipping itself into a flurry. The entire city would perish if it couldn't find a hero. But finally, one senator remembered the Silesian convict, Johann Forer, languishing in the Warsaw dungeons. Johann had been sentenced to death for robbery. The senator went to Johann's dungeon cell and offered him a bargain. If he agreed to challenge the basilisk and survived, he would be pardoned of his crimes and celebrated as a hero by all of Warsaw. Johann didn't jump at the opportunity. Even he, in the face of execution, feared death by basilisk more than a beheading. But eventually, he could not help but grasp at the chance of survival, however small. He agreed to the deal. Johann was dressed in a suit of mirrors and escorted to the cellar of Lady Macaropius. Per Benedictus' instructions, he held a rake in his right hand and a torch in his left. 
Slowly, his mirrors softly jingling, Johann descended the creaking staircase. His torch sputtered as he traveled deeper and deeper into the dark shadows. The air started to feel thicker, and a noxious perfume enveloped him. As he reached the base of the stairs, he paused, quaking. He knew that if the mirrors weren't strong enough to avert the basilisk's poisonous gaze, or if the deadly breath of the beast overpowered him, then he would die in agony. But if he ascended from the basement without the basilisk, his life was forfeit too. Facing the basilisk, at least he had a chance. Johann plunged forward, rake outstretched. Upstairs, the crowd waited outside for a full hour, breathless with anticipation. Had Johann already been slain, they wondered? Were they stuck with a ruthless, deadly monster in their midst forever? Just as one of the burghers began to turn away, disappointed and sure that Johann had fallen, the door to Lady Macaropius's house slowly swung open. The crowd stood, rapt, waiting for what was about to emerge. They trembled. Perhaps it was Johann, but perhaps it was the basilisk. Then a glimmer of reflective mirror appeared. They erupted in cheers. It was Johann. He'd survived the deadly beast. But then they saw his rake. On the end of the long tool was a strange, writhing creature. Gasps replaced the cheers, and the burghers immediately turned away from their hero. Some of them started to run, their bodies quaking from even a glimpse of the fearsome, deadly beast. The basilisk might be dead, but even then, its corpse might still have the power to kill. Only Benedictus was brave enough to examine the beast, whose poison, he explained, was rendered less effective by the sun. The people of Warsaw listened in awe as Benedictus described the beast. It had the head of a cock with a crest resembling a crown. Its eyes were those of a toad, and its skin warty and scaled. Its curved tail, meanwhile, was that of a serpent. It was, indeed, a basilisk. So ends the tale of the Warsaw Basilisk. There's no explanation of what happened to its corpse or to the hero, Johann. There's even less of an explanation for the origins of the story. One scholar suggests that the tale was first recorded by several humanist writers, one of whom was an alchemist. This alchemist may have written down the tale because of his professional interest in the ashes of the basilisk, but however he heard the story remains unknown. When we dig into the central fears of the story, however, we can start to speculate about its origins. The Basilisk of Warsaw is fearsome because of its sudden appearance in the heart of a local home, along with its ability to swiftly and mysteriously kill, and it starts with the weakest, most innocent members of the community, children. That sounds a lot like the many diseases that ravaged Europe throughout the Middle Ages, most notably the Black Plague. 
Medical science was non-existent, and illnesses like the plague were mysterious and terrifying, just like the desert of Libya was to the ancient Greeks. Often medieval Christians rationalized disasters like the plague as God's retribution. But perhaps in the case of Warsaw's basilisk, they were turning to a more traditional explanation for the ravaging forces of nature, a mythical beast. However, the basilisk did not disappear with the plagues of the Middle Ages. It was a fixture in the drama and poetry of Elizabethan writers, including Shakespeare. But as the scientific revolution started, experts began to sift through the medieval bestiaries, designating some creatures as real and others imaginary. Along with countless other monsters, the basilisk was relegated to the stuff of myths. By the end of the mid-17th century, the creature had all but disappeared from contemporary thought, art, and common knowledge. Until July of 1998, when British author J.K. Rowling published Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. The novel features an enormous, fearsome basilisk as an evil agent of the central antagonist, Voldemort. The enormous success of the book revived the legend of the beast, giving it new life after generations of obscurity. In 2002, when a movie version of the story was released, the legendary status of the basilisk was cemented in contemporary culture. Rowling's version of the beast takes some liberties. Notably, her basilisk is enormous. But otherwise, it's not so different from Pliny the Elder's Little Snake. It's just as deadly and terrifying. It still kills with its gaze, and it still symbolizes the most powerful, overwhelming threats to human life. And so the legend lives on. It's simply moved from vellum and parchment to bleached paper and movie screens, where we can feel its terror in a whole new way. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the Parcast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Joel Stein, and Carly Madden. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Nora Battelle. I'm Vanessa Richardson.